Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Denied. Uh, if you're following sports headlines, you'll know that that's what happened to Novak Djokovic when he attempted to enter Australia for the Australian Open. If you're not a tennis fan, I'll bring you up to speed. Uh, Roger Federer, uh, the face of whom you see in the right-hand picture, uh, reached the record of 20 uh, tennis majors first. And now two others, Novak Djokovic and another player, are tied with Roger Federer and trying to surpass him. Uh, and so the picture on the left, you see Novak Djokovic tweeting a happy picture of him <clears throat> heading off to Australia from his home country of Serbia. And he's saying excited to compete, <clears throat> to try to break the record, and uh, that he's excited that he has a vaccine exemption. And so now you can appreciate the humor because he was stopped at the border and denied entry. You can appreciate the humor of this meme that Roger Federer himself is the customs and immigration agent who is denying him entry. Now, um, let me try to unpack a little bit more of what was going on. If we see Novak Djokovic in the middle, wondering what's going on. On one hand, the uh, governing tennis body, Tennis Australia, informed Djokovic, gave him a certain narrative, a truth, don't worry you have a vaccine exemption to enter Australia due to your recent COVID infection, which happened in December. He operated on that truth. But then on the other hand, when he got to the border, the state government of Victoria said, nope, we don't care who you are, how famous and uh, accomplished you are, your visa doesn't allow for vaccine exemption and you have not been uh, double vaccinated, so you cannot enter. And so he's right now in limbo, being quarantined uh, at a hotel in Australia. Now, I want to use this as an analogy, because on one hand, as a Christian, from an eternal and gospel perspective, okay, from an eternal perspective and a gospel perspective, Christians should be very comfortable with the principle of a vaccine passport. Now, remember, I'm asking you to see that from an eternal perspective, because I know if you're just talking about uh, literally in day-to-day -day life right now, that can sound unsettling, and we'll leave that for another discussion. But from an eternal perspective, the principle of a vaccine passport should not bother us. Why? Because God himself, when we stand before him on that final day, will require of us a vaccine passport of sorts. He will want to see that we have been spiritually vaccinated uh, from sin, against sin. And the only way that we can be vaccinated against sin is by faith in Jesus Christ, specifically that he took our place. 
for our sin on the cross, and that we have his life in us uh, through his resurrection and his righteousness on us. Now, similar to Novak Djokovic then, as we live life in this world, there's one governing body that is telling us one set of truths. The world is telling us, live only for your happiness now. That is a celebrated and predominant value and narrative and message in our day and time. You define your best self. You can do it. Look deep inside yourself and live the life that is your truth. But on the other hand, there is a more authoritative government, God's government, and His judgment seat that we'll all stand before on that final day. And Jesus' cross and empty tomb, the gospel, speak to the truth that, no, there is eternal life after death. And your best self is not good enough to, be, to enter into the new creation in eternity. And we are saved in eternity only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, Djokovic's, the tennis player's, mistake was that he didn't understand the system. He didn't understand the requirements of the greater governing body of the state of Victoria. He didn't understand the master plan of that government. Similarly, the church of Jesus Christ needs to understand a certain master plan. The church has a master plan, but not our own plan in and of ourselves as the church, as an institution or uh, some body. But no, our master plan is God the Father's, the Son's, the Spirit's master plan. And that's, I think, what we see in today's passage. And so my prayer for all of us is, Lord, help me to get on board with your master plan. I hope as a result of working through today's passage that something like that would stir in your heart and, and you would want to talk to God by faith and say, Lord, help me to keep getting on board with your master plan. Now, to be clear then, let's define the Father's master plan. Here is a summary First, the Father's master plan is to redeem a new country unto himself. By country, I mean what we typically understand of a country, a nation with its own government occupying a defined territory. God has a vision for a new country, a new people, a new city, a new citizenship, a new society, a new community. He wants to redeem a new country unto himself by means of a new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. The constitution and the agreement between him as king and his people, his citizens, is this new covenant of grace. And why? To enjoy eternal life with him in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a new uh, territory, meaning a new recreated earth, in doing life as he meant it to be. So that's the master plan. Now, then when I want to ask for the rest of uh, the messages, how, how, how do I get on board with God's master plan? And here's the first big idea that I want you to see with me, that we need to keep immersing ourselves into Jesus' gospel narrative, into Jesus' gospel story. We need to make sure that we are following the right set of truths uh, and, 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 uh, and beliefs to not be like Djokovic who just trusted the lesser governing body and failing to understand the system, the master plan of the greater governing body. Similarly, we need to keep immersing ourselves into Jesus' gospel narrative because that is the meta-narrative, that is the ultimate governing story. So related then, um, 
we need to, it's always good to ask and to remind ourselves to reflect once again who's our authority in life and you know that baked right into the word authority is the word author because the author of the story is the authority of what the meaning is of who the characters are how they're defined and what role they play and so we need to ask ourselves as Christians what's our role in God's gospel story I love how John Stott puts it that life uh, it's it's healthy, it's, it's wise to see it as a great drama that is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church and Christ's followers in every land are the actors. Of course, we're not just acting it hypocritically or, or faking it. We are genuinely living it out. This is an analogy. And, and God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. And act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. God's gospel story, his narrative. So, who's your authority? Who's your author? What's your role in God's gospel story? Now, we, we see this uh, in today's passage. I want to show you where Paul draws this out. And I want you to notice how often Paul speaks of something outside of himself being placed on him, being given to him. And now, because of that, he sees his identity. He's defined not from something within himself, but what God has uh, graced him with. So let's pick up in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister or servant according to the gift of God's grace. There it is to start with God giving something externally. He is pouring out his grace onto Paul. And so he elaborates, which was given me by the working of his power. And so God, to go back to John Stott's beautiful metaphor, that he is the director, he is the inspirational director, giving direction as to what we should think and feel and, and what role we play and what story we fit in. He defines it, and we work it out by his power. And to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, see, Paul, when he looked inside himself, he didn't see something beautiful and magnificent and, 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 and defined by himself. No, he didn't see his best self. He saw a deep need for the grace of God, for the love of God, for uh, the forgiveness of God in Christ. Why? Because A, literally he martyred Christians, he persecuted Christ's church, and B, he had to be confronted and chastised, chastised by Christ himself. And so again, he repeats in verse 8, this grace was given. And so he himself wanting to preach, to tell this beautiful story to the Gentiles, to the rest of the non-Jewish world, the multicultural, multiracial world, the unsearchable riches of Christ. My daughter and I, we just wrapped up approximately, I think, like a two-year journey of walking through uh, six seasons of Supergirl, a TV show. Uh, and it became a good discipleship opportunity for me. Uh, the series and the content... <clears throat> The, the morals, the values, it was a mixed bag. On one hand, there were wonderful things to connect with my daughter and being a girl herself and, and inspiration of Supergirl and so forth. But on the other hand, the writers and producers uh, were using the voice of Supergirl to celebrate and champion all the, the, the top 10 list of values and uh, uh, norms of our society and culture today. And so uh, I had to be alert, and I would only let her watch it with me beside, uh, with me beside her so that we could go through it and, and I could help her to discern and uh, to, to understand, okay, what they're talking about here and teaching here, that's the world. That's, that doesn't vibe with 
what we believe is God's story for us. And so here is Christ's story for us, the gospel story, and showing her how the gospel story speaks um, to what they are longing for, what the world, these writers and producers are trying to champion, and also how it confronts those things and disagrees with uh, those values. And so I, I want to just quote a little bit of, in the series finale, uh, this climactic speech by Supergirl because it is the embodiment, it is an encapsulation of everything that our culture celebrates in this moment in history, at least in, in the Western world. And so she says, My whole life as Supergirl has been built on a premise that has been deeply flawed. This idea that people need to be rescued, that my job, my mission is to save them. I believed it was my calling to be Earth's hero. It's just so clear to me now we don't need to be heroes. We need to be partners for every single person to be the hero of their own life. Pause there. Okay, that's confusing because she's speaking out of both sides of her mouth. On one hand, she's saying we don't need to be rescued. We don't, we don't need a hero. A, that goes straight in the face of the gospel. That says, that gives us some humble pie to say, no, you need saving. You need rescuing by God from your sins. And Jesus Christ is the only way because he substitutes you. He takes your place for your sins, taking your punishment. But then, out of the other side of her mouth, she's saying, but you need to be the hero of your own life. So you, you are to rescue yourself. So which is it? Which is it? She goes on. Villains are tapping into your collective life force. They're trying to siphon your truth, hope, courage, your humanity. They're trying to vanquish your destiny. I see now there's only one way to heal and flourish by all of us working together as a team when each of us contribute our unique gifts to the world with a full heart. Together we will shine. Now here, there are some nice things that even pull on my heartstrings, and there's some very pseudo-Christian themes and truths and values here. We as a church want to be unified. We as a church have been given gifts by the Spirit, and we're meant to do our part. And we're meant to shine together, unified in Christ, and to be His city upon a hill that shines these good works to the world. And so this sounds on the surface Christian. That's why we need discernment. And so she continues, The power of one individual is enough to move mountains. If we can all tap the deepest truths of our soul in our own magnificence. And so there, there it is. A, a pièce de résistance, uh, just a, a core um, celebration and championing value of our modern times, or I should say postmodern times, that we are beautiful in and of ourselves, that we need to just speak our deepest truths to look deep within ourselves. And therefore, together we will defeat the powers of darkness. Together we will be unstoppable. Together we will create a better world. I sympathize with Supergirl and, and the writers and producers that were voicing their longings and hopes through uh, her character, but they want their dreams to be realized through their own human effort, their own human strength, and they hope and dream for a better world, but it will be of man's making, really just another Tower of Babel in our day and time. Now, the psalmist, just spending time in Psalm 36 this past week for my own um, time with God, and he knew, he already foresaw thousands of years into the future. He knew that this is the human condition, the human heart, 
And so he says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. And really notice this part. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. He is describing our culture today to a T. We love to only speak the goodness of ourselves. We love to only see the positive, to flatter ourselves, to see our magnificence, our own beauty, our own deep inner truths. And when we operate that way, we can't see. We get to a point where our hearts are so hardened that we cannot, whether out of fear and, and, and just crippling shame or just hardness and denial, we don't see our need to be rescued by God. And so as the psalmist says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Now it's important to understand this dynamic of narrative and to understand the power of narrative at play because we see this being played out in Canadian history right before our very eyes. That speech of Supergirl, it describes Canada. And specifically, very specifically, in a bill that came into reality, that came into uh, being ratified, and now law uh, in Canada this past Friday, January 7th. And that law is Bill C-4. To explain, the elders of Trinity Grace Church are standing in solidarity with other churches and pastors uh, by a red... Uh, by reading a letter that I'm about to read that has been drafted uh, as a Christian response and this same letter being read to many churches uh, and Christ followers in response to the passing of Bill C-4. If you're unfamiliar with Bill C-4, uh, it's the government's attempt to uh, meet uh, the social justice needs of uh, the world of sexuality and fluidity and genderism uh, and specifically to criminalize what is called conversion therapy. But the wording of the bill is such that taken on face value, it is actually now a criminalization of Christianity. Taken at face value, it could be interpreted that way. And it criminalizes our gospel narrative. And so uh, let me just read this letter and understand that I'm reading this on behalf of our elder council and in solidarity with all the other churches and pastors uh, that are also reading this letter. This past week marked a monumental change in Canadian law and society with the enactment of Federal Bill C-4, which amends the criminal code. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw, quote-unquote, conversion therapy. We strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices the bill was introduced to address. We, are, we appreciate and affirm the desire of parliamentarians to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose because its definition of quote-unquote conversion therapy is vague Many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscience, thought, belief, expression, and association. 
It is our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal prosecution, but rather that we might compromise in our teaching of the Word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. Along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God without fear or favor. This includes God's life-giving design for human beings, made in His image, male and female. With sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and a woman, we will continue to issue the call to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel, knowing that we all have sinned and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the world. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name. And we press on in the work of ministry. We will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and keep us and to work out His greater purposes for our good and His glory. We continue to pray for our government and to plead with the Lord to have mercy on our needy land. Signed, Trinity Grace Church Elder Council, in solidarity with churches in Canada who live in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, looking to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Now let me summarize this in another way. If you look at life, there are basically two approaches, two major narratives. First, it's the narrative of grace, of God's gospel in Christ. To acknowledge that you're dependent on God. He's your creator, and you fall short of his glory, and you need rescuing. You need forgiveness of sins that's found in Christ taking your place, taking your punishment. Or we can continue on this narrative of performance. Albeit that was the original covenant, that was the original contract between God and man. That if we perform, if we just obey this, these commands to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of tree of good and evil, and we, then we will continue to earn our eternal life. Now, we see this wonderful narrative grace in Paul continuing to say at the end of verse 8, he says he wants to preach, meaning to tell the story, to tell the, the, the author's authoritative story joyfully. And with conviction, he wants to tell the story to the non-Jewish, multiracial, Gentile world, the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a beautiful expression. The inexhaustible beauty of Christ. That's another way to, to, to say the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so you and I, we need to keep immersing ourselves in Jesus' gospel narrative. Keep putting on that lens. Keep going out to your day, to your work, to your family life, to your relationships, your friendships, your rest, all of that through a gospel narrative. Well, next big idea, how do I get on board with God's master plan? We need to keep praying for God's government to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I say government because um, you could easily say what we see in Scripture Keep praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Jesus taught us to pray. 
through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I'm honest, when I think of the word kingdom, I first think of the magical kingdom, Disney World. <laughs> kingdom as a word and idea, it's, it's not so familiar and, and contemporary. But basically, a synonym, and hopefully that, therefore it connects with you more, is government. When Jesus says, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's basically asking God for his government to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in my best study of uh, scripture and theology, I don't believe that uh, we are to see a Christian nation, a new country on this side of eternity. Because if we look on church history and the history of Israel, a Christian nation per se does not work out. It has not worked out. Okay? And I believe this, this, this government, this Christian country, this Christian nation, this new country, this people that God redeems unto himself will see the full, true uh, actualization of it and, and consummation of that beautiful new world when Christ returns. But nevertheless, we're meant to start working towards that, longing for that, praying for that. And so that's why I'm asking us, inviting us to keep praying for God's government to come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, where do we see this in today's passage? As we continue in verse 10, uh, Paul says, So that through the church, God's new country beginning to form on this earth in history, that's the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be what made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What I want you to see here is that the context of the life of the church, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church is to be like diplomats and ambassadors to stand before other kings and queens. The church stands before these rulers and authorities. Now here it's specifically in the heavenly places. If we read Ephesians as a whole, we know that in chapter 6, in the context of spiritual warfare, Paul says, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but our battle is against the principalities of the air, the rulers, the unseen forces and authorities in the heavenly places. And so we know that from the dawn of time that there was a rebellion incited by Lucifer. And therefore, from that moment, there was the kingdom of God, the government of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and there was an enemy, the kingdom of darkness, of, of Satan, and all those who would uh, rebel along with him and not turn back to God and acknowledge their need for rescuing and, and grace for their sin through Christ. And so here Paul is speaking about this cosmic warfare that plays out. Remember, history is the theater. The world, the earth, is the stage. And through history, the theater of history and the stage of the world, this cosmic battle has, believed, uh, has been playing out, I truly believe, through the earthly political kingdoms and kings and queens and jurisdictions and so forth, even to this day, even as we see bills like Bill C-4 being passed, it is what Paul is speaking to, that there's this cosmic battle being played out in the theater of history on the stage of the world. And so the church has this immense and critical role, this part to play in God's gospel narrative. The church is central to history. The church is central to the gospel. The church is central to the Christ follower living out their faith. It needs to be lived out in the church. And our role is to make known 
to, to, to preach and to pray out loud with confidence and joy against the kingdom of darkness. And so here's a reflective question for you and me. Do you own, do you own your identity as Christ church? Do you own it? Do you see yourself? I am God's son or daughter. I am his church in Christ. And I have a part to play, a central role to play in history. Look how Paul describes it again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, through the church. I want to liken that to, uh, if you've ever seen, if you know the idea of a, a draft in sports. And so all these rookies are being lined up and teams get to pick and draft players. And there's always the prospect that the number one draft. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful story when the number one draft actually pans out to be that dominant force uh, in the sport. The church, so to speak, is Christ's first draft. It's his number one draft. And, and um, in Christ, in union with Christ, the church is being looked to as the force, the tour de force that God will use to unfold and finish uh, his redemptive history as they are in union with Christ. And so through the church, the manifold wisdom, that's a beautiful word, manifold there. Manifold means many splendors, many colors. There's, there's a layer to the word, a nuance to the word that means literally many colors. And so Paul here is speaking to what he's been speaking about in the chapters before, the, the, the multiracial reality of the church that is not just Jew alone, but Jew and Gentile, the multicultural world, multicultural being multiracial, multiclass, multigenerational, and multiplying. And so the church, through the manifold wisdom of God, might now make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so like a multifaceted diamond, this is who you are. Church, do you own your identity as church? And so I want to encourage you and give you just another picture to, to motivate you to keep praying, to keep praying that God's government would come on earth as it is in heaven. You see, these prayers are like roots. They're, they're the unseen roots below the ground. Our prayers can feel unseen, unheard, because we pray them by faith, and do they really go to God's ear? And they do, they do, they do. But roots, of course, they grow up into trees, the visible part on the surface. And, and so like the visible tree on the surface, you and I are to also make disciples, to farm the fruits of discipleship that we see on the surface. But as we make disciples, more and more disciples, that one tree becomes two trees and many trees, and it becomes a forest. And so we need to see this whole picture that these seemingly unseen prayers that are prayed by faith, that they work itself out in obeying that major command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. And as we see more and more disciples populating the earth, then we will get closer and closer and closer to that Christian nation, that, that better world that even Supergirl dreams of, what it will be, it'll be truly realized only in Christ. And so I love how John Stott puts it. Our responsibility is to be faithful in spreading the gospel, since this is the means which God has ordained by which to bring light to those in darkness. And so finally, we need to keep focused on God's eternal purpose. How are we going to get on board with God's master plan? We need to stay focused on this master plan, that this is the master plan. This is God's eternal purpose from Beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, his will, his counsel has not changed. He has been steadfast 
in um, planning this, in executing it, and inviting us to be a part of this redemptive history. Now, this is important to ask because, so let me ask, what is your foundational motive? What is your foundational motive when you go to work, when you rest, when you love people? Is it foundationally, fundamentally, in the deepest place because it's connected to, it's tied to God's eternal purpose? Now, being self-aware at this level of motives is so important as a human being because your motive determines how joyful you are and how lasting your joy will be through thick and thin. If you're having a tough day at work, if you can remember your motivation, and it's a motivation big enough to help you look beyond the stress, to look beyond the deadlines, and to keep pushing forward, that motivation will become strength. So, of course, if we have an eternal purpose, an eternal motivation, the, the most beautiful and glorious motivation, that is what is meant to carry us on as Christ followers. And this motivation, the test of it is, is it just until the next paycheck, the next promotion, the next purchase, the next thing, the next uh, recognition. And often if that's the case, then that joy doesn't last. And we find ourselves enslaved and we got to keep finding that next thing. But if our joy is tied to God's eternal purpose, then our joy does not run dry through thick and thin. And so, see with me, Paul says here, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's whole plan, all of it streams toward and, and actualizing and being realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so much so, Paul says in verse 13, if this eternal purpose is yours, he says what basically, I've only said what Paul is saying here, that even suffering can become glory. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory because of God's eternal purpose. Now let me put it this way. I had a heart-to-heart -heart recently with my son, and I think of the world that he is growing up in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. What would the world be like? And it's challenging enough to follow Jesus today. And as a middle-aged adult, I wonder how much more challenging it will be for him and my daughter as they grow into adults and the world as it changes as they grow up. And we were talking about the metaverse or the virtual world. We are talking about um, being colonized on Mars and so forth. And, and he had this honest, heart-to-heart moment. Dad, if I'm just honest, if Jesus doesn't come back before all these things happen, we just live in this virtual world and, and Mars is colonized, I don't know if I will naturally want to believe in God because the virtual world just makes you just try to create happiness now will be sucked into it. And, and, and if, if Jesus doesn't come back before we colonize Mars or if there's life on other planets, what does that say about what the Bible says and, and everything I believe in? And thankfully, I was meditating on Ephesians chapter 3 and that God has had an eternal purpose. And so I'll say to you what I said to him. Even if Jesus has not returned 10,000 years from now, the gospel is still true. Because it's an eternal purpose. We can't say how this world will continue to develop and what advances in the technology and so forth and how life might change. But that does not change the fact that God is God. And if scripture says this gospel is eternal and true, then no matter what happens in the history of the world, 
this is true. And we continue to place our faith in Christ. And also, history might go on for 10,000 years, but for every one of us, history will actually only go some 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, at most, maybe 100, 120 years, meaning when we pass away, we will know, we will know. The gospel is still true. God's eternal purpose truly is eternal. So Lord, help me to get on board with your master plan. Help me to get on board with your master plan and to live my life in view of this each and every day.